by the way, this morning I posted something uh, on my blog that uh, automatically feeds to the church Facebook page on 10 things uh, your missionaries won't tell you. Uh, in my opinion, it's a must read. 10 things your missionaries won't tell you. Now, if you've never served uh, on the mission field as a career missionary, a lot of these things might be brand new to you in terms of how the missionaries view uh, both their ministry and how they view their, the, the, the churches that support them. I think it's an incredibly uh, powerful piece. It's written by a missionary who's been in Bolivia for a long time. And uh, yeah, hope you'll take a read, uh, read it. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, ch chapter 8 this morning. <clears throat> Luke, chapter 8. We'll be beginning at verse 26. <clears throat> uh, when I was a, a, a teenager, a lot of guys were motorheads. Now, if you're um, 20, 23 years old, you might have no clue what that word means. What, what's a car junkie called today? You really like cars and motors and stuff. Is there a name for those people? Strange? Mechanical? I don't know. Car what? Car guys. It's, you're an old salesman. I mean, <laughs> are you really into, you know what these guys are called? Anyway, next year, so if you're a motorhead or car guy, get a load of this next year chrysler corporation any mopar fans chrysler corporation is coming out with a new dodge challenger it goes from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds uh does a quarter mile under 10 seconds uh 6.2 liter engine oh it comes standard with just one seat you have to pay extra to get a second seat uh, on the um on the navigational panel you can switch from street mode to drag mode 840 horses and this is somehow going to be street legal i don't understand that i was talking to joy shorts the other night she has her eye on one uh, i think she's going to have to do a gofundme project though because they started like 85 grand so the name of this new dodge challenger is the demon dodge challenger demon why a lot of power, a lot of noise, a lot of chaos. And we, people think about demons, you know, that's a, it's a scary thing and they're wild and chaotic. And when they influence people's wild chaos, noise. And we get some of that from scripture. I'm not convinced that that's typically how you and I are going to see them manifested today. We'll get to that. Uh, a little bit later. Um, it was interesting. <clears throat> I knew there, uh, there were a couple of universities in the U.S. that have as their mascot uh, for their athletic teams, demons, and did not realize how many high schools across the U.S. Uh, call their athletic teams demons. And I asked my wife on Friday night, I said, what would we have done? All our kids played sports in high school. What would we have done if our teams, the Pequway Valley Braves, would be the Pequway Valley Demons? I'm like, I can't see myself in the stands going, go demons. I don't think I'd do that. I'm not even sure I could, could allow my kids to play for them. But anyway, people, though, who are not typically people who are not believers 
don't think about this the same way. It might be because they don't believe there are such a thing as demons. We go out trick-or-treating with our grandkids, and, you know, I'm horrified sometimes to see kids dressed up like Dante's version of a demon. That's not what they look like. They're invisible, but still the, the connection there between this is my child and I send you out <laughs> trick-or-treating dressed like a demon? Really? And I think even for us as, uh, who are Christians, there is a, um, um, it, it, it's hard to think about something so evil and so destructive that some people use a name for them and with such cavalier thought. And so this morning, it, it's tempting for us as we read about Jesus' encounter with demons, it's tempting to think, oh, this is, this, is, this was back then. This is not today. And to do that is to open ourselves up, make ourselves vulnerable to the, to the very one who still exists and who still runs this demonic horde and who still has our demise in mind, but who may work in far different ways typically than what we're about to read. So what I want you to think about this morning is not so much this particular manifestation and how um, this man appeared to Jesus, but to realize that the same power, the same force that, that co-opted this man is the same forces, same force slash forces that are alive today and are determined to do you in. Determined to undermine you, determined to destroy you, determined to divert you. Might just do it in a different way. Luke chapter 8. Let me pray for us before we begin, then we'll read the text. Father God, I pray for, um, first of all, the protection of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Because we know that we stand as a target of the enemy. Satan and his entire demonic horde hate you, and because they hate you, they hate us. And Revelation 12 insists that Satan, when he lost to you, that he sets his sights on us, making war against us. And so we pray for Jesus' protection this morning. We pray for the Holy Spirit's insight this morning, understanding of this war that is being waged against us. And that on the one hand, if we know Christ, we might not fear. And on the other hand, if we don't know Christ, we might perhaps see, maybe even for the first time, that we ought to be afraid. That even though we don't perceive ourselves to be the target, that we really are. And we have no body armor named Jesus to protect us. And I pray that the enemy would be um, muzzled this morning, that he would be bound, that the word of God would go forth in the power of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Luke eight twenty six. So they, and this is speaking about Jesus and his disciples, so they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. 
Now, for a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. And then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. And Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. And so Jesus gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed, perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. And then those who had seen what had happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. And so Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home saying, No, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. And so he went all through the town proclaiming the great things <clears throat> Jesus had done for him. Now before I dive into some of the particulars in the story, um, let me give you some background. Who are demons? Where do they come from? What's their um, modus operandi and so forth? Um, we're not given a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, orderly detail about demons in the Scripture. Uh, we conclude they were created along with everything else in the first week, Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything. Um, we have little bits and pieces um, pasted throughout the Scripture that tell us little things. We know that there was one angel. God created the angels to serve him, to serve his purposes, his agenda, and ultimately to serve us. They were holy. They were supernatural, endowed with supernatural powers. But one angel, we today call Satan, um, the tempter, the deceiver, um, Abaddon, Apollyon, a lot of names given to him. He decided that he would do a better job being God than God would. And so he fomented an insurrection. <clears throat> and if Revelation chapter 12 tells us about that, he persuaded a third of the angelic host to go with him. That insurrection didn't go very well. Satan lost and he was cast out of heaven along with these other um, angels, which we don't typically speak of them today as angels. We talk about them as demons or devils and they are now bent on destruction they are bent on fighting against and warring against god and his people and they do it in various ways 
It's interesting, there are only about seven instances of Jesus casting stories that were told in the gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons. Now, there are other times where it talks about him when he's with a group casting out demons, but there are only specifically, excuse me, six stories, I believe, and then one more story in the book of Acts, Acts 16 with Paul. But after that, after Jesus goes back into glory, there's only that one instance recorded about a demon being cast out of someone which is kind of intriguing because the temptation is to read these individual accounts and assume this is how demons typically work i don't know that that's the case are demons still around today absolutely but i tend to agree with c.s lewis in his book um, uh, the screw tape letters where he try he implies that the demons have learned different behaviors they've learn different conduct. They're very, very, very smart. And they adapt themselves to the ways that are going to be most effective. I mean, organizations do that. We, we learn to, to do business differently. We de- learn to do church differently. Has the times changed? The message never changes of the church. The bottom line of a corporation never changes but they learn to adapt to the changing culture. And demons are no different, except they're smarter than churches and they're smarter than CEOs. And so I think they have adapted. And if you don't see this kind of full frontal assault in your life or in the life of someone else, and I'll tell you, in my ministry days, there have only been three instances with individuals where I've suspected demonic activity of this kind of odd paranormal nature. But there have been countless thousands of times where I've suspected the enemy at work in some other less frontal assault type of way. And we have to understand that when demons work, whether they work in this very um, uh, obvious supernatural way or if they work in very subtle ways, make no mistake about it, They are just as powerful, and they are just as destructive, and they are just as toxic. The Bible says that we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. And I would ask you, Christian, is that true of you? Or are you ignorant of his schemes? Because ignorance breeds vulnerability. Do you know how Satan works? Do you know what his demons are up to in your life? Do you know your area's of vulnerability so we see this man a slave to demons and what an awful incredible picture of the repercussions of satan's work in a person's life here's a man who's wild he can't be restrained they put chains on him he's got such strength demonic strength that he actually breaks chains he's running around living in a cemetery with no clothes on Can you imagine you're going to a funeral at that cemetery and you've got to put your hands over your kid's eyes uh, because they're going to see this guy who's running around naked. Very strange in our point of view. We're like, I've never seen anything like that. When you look at the people who are demonized in the scriptures that uh, Jesus and Paul deal with, you see a number of different manifestations. Insane raving, uh, seizures, In one case, a person can't see it. Another person can't hear. Another person can't speak. Uh, Another person is able to speak to the dead and to tell fortunes. A lot of different 
manifestations. There's one who does self-mutilation, self-harm. He cuts himself with sharp rocks, which is kind of interesting with the trend uh, in our day, especially with young women who cut themselves on their arms. I'm not saying they're demonized, but certainly that, that inclination is not coming from, from the Lord. And this picture of this person uh, in, it, in all of its, his demonic glory, if I can use uh, that phrase, I think is indicative to us of the power and the effect of the enemy working in a life, whether there is this external kind of manifestation or not. And make no mistake about it, people who do not know Jesus Christ are as thoroughly affected by Satan and his demons as this man was, even if they don't have this kind of outer manifestation. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute, isn't that a pretty strong statement to make you're you're sweeping everybody who doesn't know christ into this single category as if they're somehow like this guy that's what the bible says may have you turn to ephesians chapter 2 read the first couple of verses there and i can tell you before i was a christian i i would have had a a big problem believing this about myself but it was true it was true of you. If you're a Christian, this was true of you before you were a Christian. Paul here is speaking to believers. He says, once, verse 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He's saying you were spiritually dead. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. And by the way, if you're not a Christian and you say, I, I don't have many sins, the Bible tells us that when we commit one sin, we've been lumped into the category of people who've done many sins. Verse 2, you used to, again, he's talking to, to believers, followers of Jesus, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. So now, and now he's put people into two different camps, people who are believers, people who are not. And the rest of this world, this is, this is what's true of them. They are obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. This is something that I think as Christians we have to remind ourselves of again and again and again. How many times have you thought about someone who's a really nice person, maybe you work with, maybe it's a family member, maybe they live next door to you, and you think they're just such nice people, they just need this one little thing yet, they just need to come to Jesus. And yet the Bible says, no, they, they need this big thing yet because they, just like this wild man in the cemetery, are slaves to the devil, doing his bidding. Probably don't know it, but they are. And you and I were exactly like them. If you're a Christian, you and I were exactly like them B.C., before Christ. And I think one of the advantages of, of, of seeing this kind of raw wild, ugly manifestation of demonic power is it gives a picture to onlookers of the incredible ugliness and wickedness of Satan's work. And make no mistake about it, some of these people that are tidied up that you know and love and care about who are not believers are just as affected by the enemy. It's just not pic pictured in the same ugly way. In fact, I am of the opinion, and it's just my opinion, that Satan has become so good 
at making himself presentable that it is some of the nicest people in the world that are some of the most empowered by the enemy. Why? Because they're a great selling technique for Satan. Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the premier atheists of our day, has tried to counter the anti-atheist argument that's always been out there, that you need a God in order to have a moral center. And so if you're an atheist, you're not going to do moral things. And Dawkins says, no, we atheists, we do moral things as well. We care about the poor, we care about the needy. Isn't it interesting that some of the world's richest men have decided to get together, and these men are not men of faith, have decided to get together and give away the vast proportion of their sums, their wealth. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. They, these guys have all publicly committed to give away tons and tons and tons of money. Can you think about the selling advantage of that for the enemy to say, look at how, look at how great the people are who don't follow Christ? Subtle. It's smooth. It looks good from the outside, but this is the real picture. The picture that Jesus is seeing, this man in front of me, this is the real picture of someone who is a slave to demons. Doesn't matter how well a person hides demonic impact, doesn't matter how sharp the fashion is of the clothes they wear or the success or the applause they get of people, the academic degrees they have. It's still rotten to the core. Slave to demons. And along comes Jesus, who is a savior to the desperate. And it's interesting what happens immediately. Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately this man is next to him. And do you see what he's doing? He's down on his knees in front of Jesus. Do you see the picture of power, more power, less power? This is the one who's in command. This isn't. And apparently Jesus, when he met him first, he told the demon to come out of him. And the demon gets, there's just the horror, the terror of being in the presence of the Holy One of God. He's begging, he's pleading, he's, he's pleading for his life. He's begging Jesus not to send him into the pit. Don't torture me, which indicates he knows his future involves torture. Matthew chapter 25, things verse 41, and the, into the hell prepared for the devil and his angels. He knows his time is coming. And Jesus asks him his name. And he's not speaking to the man. He's speaking to the demons in the man who's using the man's vocal cords. And the, and the demon answers, my name is Legion. Now, in the Roman army, a legion was a group of about 6,000 men. doesn't mean there were 6,000 demons in here, but he was speaking about the fact that there are many demons in this man. And so he's begging, the demon's begging for, <laughs> kind of begging for his life, and the demons don't go away. They, they're, gonna, they're supernatural beings. They're going to live forever in judgment. But he doesn't want to go there before his time, and he's begging, just send us into these pigs. There's a herd of pigs over here. And Jesus says, go. Demons leave the man. They go into the pigs. Now, Mark tells us when he tells this story that the number of pigs was about 2,000. And the pigs go nuts. 
They run down the steep bank. They run into the Sea of Galilee, and all of them are drowned. And there are some questions that come up, aren't there? 2,000 pigs. Some farmer lost a lot of money. A lot of money. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? We don't know whether the farmer was Jewish or Gentile. If he was Jewish, he had no business raising pigs. You go to the Middle East today, because there are Jews there and because there are Muslims there, you can't order bacon off a menu. That's a no-no. In the Jewish faith, you can't eat swine. You can't eat anything that comes from a pig. No ham loaf. And if you are Muslim, Islam is a, a hybrid faith of Christianity, Judaism, and paganism. And they pulled that from Judaism. You can't eat pigs there either. Might have been a Gentile farmer. Might have been a Jewish farmer. But he, here's, here's the thing. And maybe the man who had the pigs was very, very wealthy, and this was a drop in the bucket to him. If you're a Christian and you're going through hard times, somebody has probably told you uh, along the way, urged you to pray about it, saying, God cares about everything in your life. And that's true. But sometimes what's conveyed to that or what's understood in that statement is, God values everything in my life the same way I valued it. And that's not true. If that were true, then Jesus would have never asked the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give the proceeds to the poor. And the man went away sad, unwilling to do that. Why? Because he valued money differently than Jesus valued money. And Jesus valued a man's sanity far more than he valued spiritual sanity, than he valued the lives of those pigs. There's a somewhat related question that comes up. What about just the death of the pigs? Did Jesus care about animals? Um, again, we don't always value things the same way that God values them. And so in our day and age, increasingly, there seems to be a um, no, there's, there's, there's like no line between species of animals and, and people. We have, in part, Dr. Mart Singer, uh, Dr. Peter Singer, who is the head of the ethics department at Princeton University, which I find an incredible joke, to thank for that. Singer has argued publicly and in books and articles that it may well be that in some cases, a pig, for example, is more valuable than a one-month-old child. And there are people who are on board with this. You see it in the letters to the editor sometimes. There's, there's no difference between the, the, the puppy mill industry in Lancaster County and, and, say, retirement homes. We're just different species. Now, before you report me to PETA, uh, God cares, and we should too, about animals. To me, the most instructive verse on that is the last one in the book of Jonah. If you remember Jonah, he was a reluctant missionary. God sent him to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He finally went. He preached to them. They agreed to repent, and Jonah was ticked off about that because he wanted to see them burn. 
And God says to him at the end of Jonah in that book, he said, here's Nineveh. There's 120,000 people in Nineveh and many animals as well. Shouldn't I care about such a great city? So, so God, would, God cares about animals, but not in the same way as he does about people. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 6, you know, sparrow falls, God cares about it, but you're w- worth much more than sparrows. There's a distinction. And Jesus, I don't think Jesus lost a minute of sleep over 2,000 dead pigs. It's just not the same. It doesn't value it the same way. Now, what I find interesting, uh, I'm way out of time here, but what I find interesting is the herdsmen uh, uh, went all over the county telling about what they had seen. The people come back. They see this formerly demonized man sitting at Jesus' feet. He's got his clothes on. He's in his right mind. He's at peace. And do you see what their reaction was? They lived with this nut job out on the fringes of their town for all these years. A man that the authorities had tried to bind up with chains, who wouldn't put any clothes on, living among the dead people, away from living people. And yet now that he's okay, they're scared. They weren't scared before, apparently, Now they're scared. Listen, friends, this is instructive for us. There are some times that you talk to people about Jesus and you cannot understand why they're not, why wouldn't you you respond to Jesus? Why wouldn't you become a follower of Jesus? You see the kind of response that the demons had in Jesus' presence? They were terrified. And now the townspeople are terrified. They're so scared of Jesus that they ask him to go away, leave them. And he does. And he does. And if you're not a Christian, let me just say this to you. If you're not a Christian, you you think that you have simply not decided for Jesus. That's true, but it's not the whole story. In not deciding for Jesus, you have already by default decided on your commander-in-chief. And that's Satan. And make no mistake about it, he does not care a whit for you. He will use you, he will eat you up, and then he will spit you out. He is the orchestra conductor of disaster. And just because your life seems to be going okay now doesn't mean that it is. Now, this man wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus said, you can be a disciple of mine. And he said, no, I want to go with you. I want to follow you where you go. And he goes, no, I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow me in your heart, but I want you to go be an ambassador to your family to tell them everything God has done for you. And isn't that the call of all of us? 
all of us who have come under Christ's umbrella, all of us who've put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, isn't that what he wants of us? Go tell people how much I have done for you. Let me close, let me close with this. I think, the resp- as I say, the response of the people in the county to Jesus' amazing work in this man's life should make you, if you're not a believer, afraid. And, and listen, I don't want to scare you to, into faith. I, I'm just trying to paint a realistic picture. But if you, on the other hand, are a Christian, sometimes these kind of weird stories scare us. As an elder team here at Keystone, uh, we have gone out on three different occasions to a, a person's home from the church and prayed through their house because of very weird happenings. Footsteps, voices in children's baby monitors that are adult voices and you name it. Televisions turning on and off by themselves, lights turning on and off by themselves. The sounds of a crowd running through the house when nobody else is in, I mean, some weird stuff. And these kinds of things can, I understand, make us scared. We should not be scared. That picture of Jesus standing over the demonized man, the demons on their knees prostrate before Jesus. We don't need to be afraid. 1 John 4, 4, and I'll close with this. Greater is he that is in you. If you know Christ, greater is he. Jesus lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world, i.e. Satan. The spirit that lives in you is far superior and far stronger than the spirit that lives in the world. You do not need to be afraid of demons. Now, we can't get snarky about demons. What I mean by that, the book of Jude says even Moses, or I'm sorry, even uh, the archangel, um, was it Michael, when he was disputing with the devil over the body of Moses, did not say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. We need to understand our power is referred power. We have power because of Jesus Christ, not because of any strength of our own. But greater is he that is in you. Don't live in fear of the satanic forces in this world. They got nothing on you. You've got everything on them because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the defeat of the enemy that we know, who know Christ, that we have because of Christ. It's not because we're especially intelligent. It's not because we're especially good. It's not because we're especially wise. It's all because of a Savior who willingly mounted a cross who willingly shed his blood so that we might be delivered both from our own sin and from this power of the evil one. I pray for any that might be here this morning don't know Christ. I pray that there would be a a, a healthy appreciation that no, they're not running their own lives. They might think they are. But they've got an enemy 
who is right now in charge of that. And on the other hand, they have a savior who is reaching out a hand to them to say, come to me, repent and put faith in me. You'll find that my, my yoke, unlike the yoke you have right now, my yoke is easy. And unlike the burden that you have now of your sin and the demands of your commander-in-chief, Satan, that my burden is light. Come to me. And for us who know Christ, to rest in the marvelous grace of the one who is far more powerful than the enemy we once served. And in that we find hope. Amen.